welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. on the book of Genesis, four great events, four great characters, uh, and, uh, and next week uh, we're uh, starting to talk about the, the main characters of Genesis, and Aaron Harrison will be preaching on uh, Abraham, you may have heard of that guy, um, and so we've looked at the uh, creation of the world, the fall of, of man into sin, the flood we looked at last week, and today we're talking about Babel, um, and uh, you know, let me start by telling you a story. As many of you know, we were missionaries in Russia in the early 90s, um, living in St. Petersburg. Communist government had just collapsed and uh, the door had been opened for people to come in, all sorts of foreign investment and also assistance like we had brought in Christian ministry. Uh, and we worked with a Russian church that was in a revival season and we uh, ran a Bible school and trained uh, people uh, in in the Bible and Christian ministry, and it was a wonderful time, very fruitful uh, time of ministry, but it was also very dangerous because um, the Russian mafia were on the rise and uh, foreigners were being attacked and uh, had to keep a low profile. Um, they'd find out where the foreigners were and target them, and so um, foreign bank accounts were also targeted. They'd be raiding them and uh, muscling in on the, the bank managers for lists Uh, So we had heard this before we moved there, so we didn't do any of our banking or any of our mail through the Russian system. Mail would go missing and all that. So we used to spend uh, uh, a bit of time, every few months we'd drive a few hundred kilometres from St Petersburg over the border into Finland to a little town called Lappenranta, this great little piece of heaven that felt like, because, you know, the roads were smooth and the police were trustworthy and food was edible and you know all these things that we take for granted that were a little bit crazy in Russia at the time and to get to Finland um, you know Russia and Finland have not been the best of friends to put it mildly you may know that Stalin took about a third of Finland uh, just before World War II and after World War II they settled the borders but they ended up with this no man's land this strip of about 30 kilometers wide that runs all the way through the border so you leave Russia at one border and then you drive in this weird, eerie space where no one lives for about 20 or 30 kilometres before you get to the Finnish border. And it was in that space where there were a lot of carjackings going on uh, because the Russian gangsters were hitting up the Finnish trucks that were coming in and out. They were bringing Western produce into Russia and then they were bringing cheap Russian vodka out to sell to the Finns, who are one of the toughest, hardest drinking people in the world. Uh, And it was also in that space that our uh, car decided to break down. Our brand new Russian-built Lada Neva uh, decided to completely stop working. Um, We had, what's that? We had uh, the the little boy that was up here a little while ago. uh, It was two or three at the time, and we had a little baby who's over here now, um, and uh, they were in the back, bouncing around um, uh, in that direction. Zach, it's like, a, it's like a son to me. Craig, Libby, hope you don't mind. Yeah, 
No, no, Zach wasn't there. He was back home with his parents. Uh, Eleanor, this one, yes. Um, and so the car broke down. Uh, the whole the electrics just were completely kaput. And uh, as you can imagine, there was no NRMA or equivalent. Um, and uh, no mobile phones. And so all I had to do was try and wave down one of these uh, trucks every five or ten minutes, one of these finished great big semi-trailers would be blasting past. And of course, they were averse to stopping because they had heard about all the carjackers and there's a Russian car with Russian plates and this bloke saying, please stop. And they're just belting past. <laughs> dirt and dust flying everywhere. And then, of course, I get this great idea, which is why, why should I be standing here when my then 25-year-old gorgeous brunette spouse is sitting in the car? So we swapped places. I actually hid behind the car. Ruth went out, I kid you not, the very next truck. And I remember the brakes, the air brakes, the dust, the wheels locking up the smoke. I remember smoke from the tyres. This car, this great big semi, just slammed on the brakes. And I ran up to the side. And I remember standing up on the thing and looking. And he looked at me and then looked back, going, where's the chick? You know, and... Um, and and then what happened was the funniest conversation I've ever had in my life because he was Finnish and spoke no English and I'm from an English-speaking nation who speaks no Finnish, so our common tongue was Russian. My right Russian was and still is poor and pigeon-like and his was worse than mine. So I'm trying to explain to him, you know, firstly, I'm not a Russian gangster, I'm not about to try and rob you. Uh, I, I'm Australian, but yes, I've got a Russian car and I, I need a tow back into Finland. We'd only just been out, we'd just left Finland an hour ago and, and, I, I, and I'm trying to explain all this in, in Russian and our pronunciation's hopeless, our vocabulary's hopeless, everything's hopeless, but, you know, with sign language and, you know, and in the end, you know, I got the message through and he towed us back over the border and the Finns were a bit sus, like, can you only handle an hour in Russia? You know, why are you, why are you back again? And we, and we took it to a little town where there's some mechanics and they all just shook their head and they had to rewire the entire car and... Um, and the next day, we were back on the road and, you know, we went on. But I guess you've got your stories, especially if you've travelled overseas, of some crazy communication times where there's this language barrier and you are just totally stuck and you think, ah, oh, this is so frustrating. In fact, I know Mitchell, who was drumming here, um, made some comments recently on the building sites that he's involved in Sydney. He doesn't even have to go overseas to be frustrated that some of the brothers he's working with... Uh, you know, their command of English isn't that great. And so they're, you know, trying to build things together. Um, and, and so, you know, the question obviously is, wouldn't it be great if we could all speak the same language all around the world? And in fact, 100 years ago, um, Ludwig Zamenhof thought exactly that. And um, he was a Polish ophthalmologist but in his spare time had a fascinated with languages and went beyond that to create Esperanto. And if you've never heard of Esperanto, then that sadly shows that it just never really took off. You may have heard of it, but you've probably never learnt it and no one ever did. And so Esperanto was an attempt to create a single, easily learnt language for everyone in the world and we're all struggling, bothering to learn our own language. Uh, you know, Keelan comes home from school saying, saying I'm trying to, they're telling me I've got to learn German. <laughs> and he's like, 
I'm struggling enough with English. <laughs> and so um, poor old Ludwig, yeah. So Esperanto just didn't take off. But there was a time in history when everybody spoke the same language. And you'd think that would be a good thing. And yet it wasn't. And we'll see why. And so here's the passage in Genesis 11. It says, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So that became Babylonia. And it's in modern day Iraq, or some theologians, historians say it was a bit further north, would be Syria today. But in that general region. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So you can see there before people would just pile stones on top of each other. These guys are developing more um, sophisticated building techniques. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off or stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Babel is the Hebrew word for confusion. And, um, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. What a crazy story. And just remember this actually happened. This is not some allegorical anecdote. It's not a fable. It's, it re it's real events that have a real reason for being in the Bible and real relevance for us today. Sometimes you just got to go digging a little, but it's... It's a kind of weird slash interesting story. So let's just take a moment to see what we can learn. At first glance, it seems when I read that, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with what they're planning to do. I, is God threatened? Isn't unity a good thing? Isn't it great that they're all speaking the same language? Is, is God overreacting? Does he, is he afraid of people getting too smart for him or... What's the big deal? They've got the greatest building program of the ancient world going on, and yet God stops it. Why is that? Well, the answer is found when we realise the motivation behind what they're building, what they're up to. And that's got implications and an application for us today, which we'll get to. Notice what it says in verse 4. They say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So here's the unifying factor of language, getting all the best architects, engineers and builders all working well together, all on the same page, as everyone says, with the same language, literally. Uh, but to do what? God had given them the blessing of the one language deal, but now they're abusing it because instead of being united in faith, being united with devotion to their maker, it looks like they're becoming united against God. They're just doing their thing. They're following their own path because they've got two stated purposes behind what they're doing. It says, so we can make a name for ourselves or become famous in our own right. And secondly, it says, so we won't be dispersed or your Bible might say, so we won't be scattered all over the world. 
So they're basically motivated by pride and fear. And those two motivations are just as relevant today as it was way back then. Have a think about the fear thing. They, they say they're fearful of being scattered, even though they've actually got nothing to fear. They're not putting their faith in God for provision and, and protection and, and, and God's plans. They're acting out of, of fear of what might happen to them. And the irony is there's no one else around to attack them, uh, to fight against them or to scatter them, and yet they're still finding something to be afraid of, which, of course, can happen to us. You know, fear can be just a, a feeling and a concept that can overwhelm people, even though there's nothing concrete to really worry and be fearful of. A theologian, Walter Brueggemann, writes this about this passage and these people. He says, The fear of scattering is resistance to God's purpose for his creation. The people, sorry, because by way of explanation, you know, Adam and Noah after him, both of them were told, go, go and multiply, go and, you know, essentially be scattered, don't be afraid of it, go, spread yourselves out. He says, the people here do not wish to spread abroad, but want to stay in their own little safe mode. They try to surround themselves with walls made of strong bricks and a tower for protection against the world around them. This unity attempts to establish a cultural human oneness without God. This is a self-made unity in which humanity has a fortress mentality. It seeks to survive by its own resources. And that's, you know, a, a natural spirit and inclination that we can all have. The self-made man. I don't need God. I don't need no one. I'm, you know, hey, I can do it on my own. And... Um, Notice they, they wanted to protect what they had. They wanted to live within their comfort zone. And that's also something that we can really share or suffer in the same way because God often calls us beyond the walls that we want to build around us to be comfortable. Uh, as I said, he had already stated his plan to Noah and to Adam before that, that I want you to spread out. I want you to multiply. And I, you know, I don't want you to just stay in your own little group. And today, God is also calling us. He calls his people. Of, of course, he calls us to meet together, uh, strengthen each other, be in unity together, get encouraged, instructed, empowered. But why? Not to just stay in a holy huddle, but to be the salt and the light, yeah? to go and be influencers, to, to go, as Jesus said, into all the world. And so, um, you know, these guys, their fear kept them from God's best plan for their lives rather than living by living by faith and then discovering the amazing plans and purposes that God has. So there's fear and then there's the issue of pride. Um, look, look closely at what they're actually trying to do. And modern translations often say something like they were trying to build a tower to reach the sky or to reach up to the heavens. But that's just the English fattening out the Hebrew. The... Um, and, and so, so this is, look, that picture there and this one are both pictures of, yeah, both, you can go to the next one because they're similar. They're the traditional sort of paintings and pictures that have been created throughout time. Uh, religious painters thought, yeah, well, that's probably what Babel looked like or what they're trying to do. They might not have got all the way there, but they were trying to somehow reach heaven. And yet theologians point out to us that that's probably not what it looked like at all. 
because in the Hebrew, the more accurate direct translation says something like they were just trying to build a tower whose top is heaven. They, they weren't actually trying to build the tallest tower ever known to man to go all the way up into the stratosphere. So it was more a figurative or spiritual sense of heaven. They weren't literally trying to go higher and higher and higher. Um, and so it was, a, it was a temple that they were actually building. And archaeologists have found um, that they were known as ziggurats. And this is the diagram of one. Um, and they were originally found in this part of the world. And that's why they know that this is what Babel was attempting to look like. So what became known as Mesopotamia, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, you read about him later on, he actually tried to or did rebuild one of these kind of things. Um, and so these were the beginnings of these kind of structures, these ziggurats. In fact, even the great, well, just go back, please. Yep. The great um, Mayan civilization in like Central America traced their temples back to this design all the way back to Babel uh, because this is where it all started. And then the next picture, yeah, that's more accurately an artist's impression of what Babel would have looked like, the city and the temple. Uh, and then the next picture is one of an actual ziggurat that has been restored. I think you can see up the top, it's like the real old ruins of it, but this was excavated and then restored a bit. That's in the area in Iraq where what was once Ur, where Abraham started out from. Um, now, uh, why is all this important? Because the tower they built was religious in nature. It was more of a temple than a tower. And historians tell us that the tower was, was tied to the early development of astrology. So there, this symbolises man's attempts to control or understand the universe apart from God. They wanted a religion that they could create themselves without actually having the one true God involved. One writer says this, The Tower of Babel was an ancient power game for people who felt the inner need to be number one, even compared to God. Wow. <laughs> I think, well, that, that kind of attitude hasn't changed and shifted too much sometimes if we're not careful. So it was designed to be a symbol of man's independence from God. And that's why God stopped the building program because he needed them to be reminded of their place in the universe and of his. And so uh, they just didn't want to be submitted to God, to be accountable to their creator, which is always a problem because the only thing that restrains man's evil intent is accountability. When it's full blown, when you get a group that's thinking and acting in unity outside God's influence, uh, the results are often tragic. Uh, Adolf Hitler comes to mind because he was able to unite people with the same mindset of extreme nationalism and, well, you know, we know the results. And in fact, every other dictator that has ever caused pain and problems in the world have always had this group of supporters that they stir and unify around ideas that have no room for God, that have no godly values, no ethics or moral compass that is related to, to God's ideas. And that theologian Brueggemann says this again about these guys, a human unity without God's will 
is likely to be ordered in oppressive conformity. It's a unity founded in fear and characterised by coercion. So there's no wonder why God had to step in when we think and realise that. And here's the ultimate irony, that they, they, they built the tower so they wouldn't be scattered, uh, but they ended up getting scattered anyway. Because, you know, Psalm... 127, verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain, those who try and build it. And so there's a real lesson there, isn't there? Um, J.I. Packer calls this passage a mirror of the modern world because, you know, today skyscrapers and other engineering marvels, they're often being described as, oh, it's a, a, a shrine to man's ingenuity or it's a temple of modern commerce a landmark that you know, showcases the brilliance of the designers or the builders. And of course, there's nothing wrong with a great building, great engineering, great creativity. It's awesome. But if all the motivation and all the passion behind it is just man's pride and there's no room for God, then you start having problems. Because architects tell us that builders, uh, you know, buildings say a lot about the designer's uh, worldview, about their values. You know, and you, you, you read, there's a great book by Alain de Botton on architecture and the whole philosophy of it. And you watch, who's, um, you know, Kevin, Kevin MacLeod, you know, Grand Designs, you know, and oh, I just feel this bill. And the poor Peter, the Australian guy, he just hasn't quite got the same gift of the gab. And Kevin, you know, this guy, Grand Designs, he's always saying, you know, and he starts his show with some sort of, quippy, quirky kind of, have you ever thought of building a building that, you know, says something about the landscape and the, well, we're going to meet a couple that, oh, you know, and he's quite poetic, you know. And then the Aussie guy does the same show and he's like, have you ever tried to build a building that is really difficult? <laughs> so we're going to find out. And it's like, oh, oh, Peter, come on, please. You're just like, you're not Kevin. You've got to come up with another angle. Anyway. I, I, you know, I like I like Peter, but I I sort of feel more sympathy for him than, than admiration. And then the Kiwi guy, he's pretty good. He's in between, Chris. Yeah, he's yeah. Well, we we can talk about the Kiwis today. We can't probably another month or two because it'll be international rugby test season. But for the moment, there was a great comeback, and the poor old Highlanders got beaten. So we can talk about that. Um, poor Caleb, poor Caleb was watching it last night, and the, his team. It's his team against our team, the rugby from the New Zealand playing the Waratahs. And his team were way up in the first half. And then the second half, I wasn't there because I couldn't stand watching it anymore. I thought, oh, we're going down. But they, they had this great comeback. And Ruth said, poor Caleb, he's squirming on the lounge. And he, he sort of wanted to get out there. You know, when you watch footy, you don't just watch. You just go, oh, you know, in the part of you is trying to oh, lunge and break the tackle. And you think, what am I doing? You know, but poor Caleb's all, oh, Anyway, back to the Bible. So... Um, so, yeah, these guys, uh, you know, their values are reflected in what they were trying to do. They want to make a name for themselves. Uh, they want to build with their own sense of security, all without reference to God. In other words, they were proud. And of all the sins that we suffer from, pride's the worst because it prevents us from seeing all the others. It prevents us from seeing where we're missing it and making some adjustments and admitting that we were wrong and, and it dispels God. It, it, it keeps God at bay. It rejects God. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, said this, There is nothing into which the heart of man so easily falls 
as pride. And yet there is no more vice that is more frequently, more emphatically and more eloquently condemned in the scriptures. Pride is a thing that should be unnatural to us, for we have nothing to be proud of. A proud man ends up with less than he would have had without pride and is no gainer whatever. Pride wins no crown. And so it's sad. And I always think it's funny in a sad kind of funny way that one of the most popular songs played at funerals is the song I Did It My Way, made famous by Frank Sinatra. If you don't know the song, I will help you remember. No, I'm not going to do it. Uh, But, you know, one of the lines in that song, one of the verses says, I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. I, you know, I suspect that thousands of years before Old Blue Eyes made that song famous, that that was the theme song prepared for the grand opening of the Tower of Babel. And, and, and you can just imagine, there's an early Babylonian crooner getting ready for the ceremony, practising, wooing the crowd, wanting to stir up their sense of self-worth. We did it. Oh, you know, some ancient language, you know. Um, Oh, he's not going to sing in English, let's be accurate. Come on, I'm being theologically accurate here. Done my research, ancient Babylonian languages. <laughs> uh, well, you know, hey, you can sing that song if you like on your way out. Um, honestly, you can, the song says you can plan each of your steps by yourself. Well, go for your life and, and you know, knock yourself out, as they say, and you can... Go out and leave this life singing along with Frank and El Hal Frank, the original ancient pop star from Babel. Um, I've done a little bit more research. You'll find El Hal Frank, yeah. But, you know, really, if you're smart, you will not be singing throughout your life and certainly at your funeral, not I did it my way. You'll be singing I did it his way or at least I tried to do it his way because he knows what's best. It's just common sense and humility mixed together. Uh, so just think of the application here. There's three questions that we can ask ourselves when we think, what does this historical crazy kind of story mean for me today when I read that? Well, ask yourself these three questions. Number one, to what extent do I embody the attitude of Babel? So, you know, accomplishments, achievements, activities, all that we do, it's great. It can all be great or it can become like the Tower of Babel when we just get the motivation wrong. We could just get a little prideful or arrogant or, you know, having a need to establish my own independence from God because the spirit of Babel, it's not just way back then or it's not just out there. Sadly, it can be right in here inside our own hearts and it can cause any of us to say effectively, well, look, God is up there somewhere in heaven, but right here, down here, I'm just king of my own little universe. And we can easily, you know, slip into that. And so it's healthy to recognise and repent 
from our sin. That's why we have communion every week. Not to beat ourselves over the head and go, oh, we're sinners, we're filled with worms before God. We remember God's wonderful, redemptive grace and salvation, but that's only appreciated if you realise, oh, I'm a sinner in need of a saviour. You know, there's no, an answer means nothing if you don't have a problem to solve. The answer, oh, that's a good answer. To what? Well, this is a big problem. So we appreciate the problem by thinking, oh, yeah, it's a little dark in there sometimes. I need some light to shine in. You know, um, G.K. Chesterton, the famous English writer who was a Christian, um, he knew this tendency in the human heart. Uh, years ago, the, the London Daily Mail newspaper asked in headlines, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote in with a simple answer, Dear Sir, I am. And I think, oh yeah, that's kind of poignant and clever and, and just pointing out that if we could all say that, that's a good starting point rather than blame, you know, it's always them. It's them, it's the government, it's the, it's the, the boss, it's the, it's, you know, it's them. They say this, they're doing this to me, they, the, the, who they. Most of the problems we have in our, in our world start... With ourselves, and so it's worth checking ourselves and humbling ourselves before God. Second question is: In what areas have I experienced the judgment of Babel? Because maybe you've built a tower only to see it crumble, in a sense, and you've left wondering what went wrong. You know, perhaps you've madly been building your kingdom without giving a thought to God's kingdom, and uh, these people had their Plans thwarted, but watch this. This is it was only so they could rediscover God's best plan for them. It's not just judgment for judgment. God is not watching and waiting with a stick. Bam! Gotcha! Ha ha! Frosty, that was on you. Looking at his phone again. Looking at his phone in church. Bam! Oh no! Oh no! No! It's the Bible app. See Bible apps. See, back in the day, the pastor would say, right, turn in your Bible, Genesis, and he rustle, rustle, rustle. No, rustle. Oh, sinner, didn't bring your Bible, right? But these days, people go, oh, no, it's an app. Yeah, sure. Or is it Facebook, Aaron Harrison? Yeah, right. See, um, you know, uh, these guys, yes, God judged them and scattered them, but it's his grace. It's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? God's judgment, God's grace uh, because at this point, personally, if I was God, you should be glad that I'm not God. And I'm glad you're not God. Because after Noah, it's, they reckon it's only a couple of hundred years later. And I'd be like, I'm out of here. Or you're out of here. <laughs> this is, you know, really, he could easily have just gone with, uh, no, 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 I, my patience has been exhausted. That's it. But no, in his mercy, he scatters them. He confuses their speech so they can be humbled and give them a chance to see their weakness, to go, well, we thought we were pretty crash hot, but I guess we weren't that great because now we're messed up and we're in need of a saviour. We're looking. We better repent and turn to God and find real strength, not just our own self-made strength, real unity, not just what we conjured up, and the right religion, not just one that we make up, and the the right way to worship and the right person to worship. And so, you know, sometimes God does allow the trials of life to come to you, to, to, to hit you, maybe even to hurt you, but it's to help you. Um, 
you know, and perhaps you've had the stuffing knocked out of you and, and, and that's okay because as long as you get the message and, and realise your need for him. And that's, you know, that's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, in the Beatitudes. And I love the translation it says, blessed are those who realise their need for him because then they can encounter God. That's a modern translation on blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see God. And so it's a good place to come to the point. And that's the story of the prodigal son. You know, the lost son, he spends all the inheritance too early and he's eating pig food and he's like, ah, what does it say? When he came to himself or when he came to his senses, he went, what an idiot. I should just go back. I probably don't deserve to be a son. Maybe I can be a servant. I'll go back to the dad. And there's the dad. Oh, son, come back in. Let's have a party. I love you there. The prodigal son story in 20 seconds. And um, it's an awesome story. And we are, or at least all should be at one point, the prodigal son saying, oh, what have I done? I've come to myself, come to my senses and turn back to God. And if there's a mess going on in my life, I can turn it for good rather than just complain about it and realise, yeah, I'm not that smart after all. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. And that's not a dumb or a bad thing. That's a smart, good thing to come to God, who is an ultimate source of strength. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and, that, and that leads to the third question we should ask, which is basically, have I embraced the alternative to Babel? The Babel's wrong. Babel, spirit of Babel, self-made, prideful, do it all on my own. That's not going to work. Well, there's only one alternative and his name is Jesus. And, uh, and, you know, interestingly, in the very next chapter, when you read the Bible, you come across a guy called Abraham. And there's an amazing comparison between these prideful people who were humbled and had their grandiose plans ruined and this guy called Abraham, who it says he walked by faith and then God rocks up and says, oh, yeah, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you into a great nation because you're walking in faith, not in fear. You're walking with humility, not with pride. And and that promise that he gives Abraham is repeated all throughout the, the Old Testament until, of course, it's fulfilled because Jesus is in that lineage of promise. And the saviour that they're looking for in the Old Testament comes finally. Let me finish with one last scripture. Proverbs 18 verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And I find that interesting because we talk about this tower, but here's a tower that is a true tower and in a sense reaches to the heavens and connects heaven to earth like these guys were looking at doing. And he is also the name above all names. And as I said, the Old Testament, we're looking for him. The New Testament, we read about him coming. And now in our part of history, we can look back to see what Jesus has done. But more than that, we can look today to see what he can do in our lives. Yeah. And so, you know, it's natural for us to look for a sense of security like these people do, to, to look for a sense of accomplishment like they did. Um, and, and it's good to have a good pursuit and have expectations and plans and all sorts of stuff, but we can do it without being prideful, without having selfish ambition and living a life without any consideration of God, and that was their problem. Their goal was self-preservation, self-made security. And, you know, all they could see was what 
All they understood was what they could see, their physical environment, their physical capability. But God calls us to be a little transcendent, a little more aware of spiritual, eternal realities rather than just bricks and mortar or whatever we're building with our hands. Yeah, And so um, in a sense, we're called not just to build treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And these guys... Well, they were trying to build utopia and, and a lot of people have tried since, a sense of heaven to earth. But you know, their quest and that quest is, is never going to be completed until Jesus returns. And then on that day, come on, all our longing will be fulfilled. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.